0: Jesus, thank you Lord, Jesus, 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 good evening. good evening, while I was, while we were in worship, I just uh, felt God wanted me to give a little opening to this message, and uh, Accidentally shut my tablet off. There we go. Paul never had that problem. <laughs> uh. Well, this is Second uh, Peter chapter three verses ten and eleven. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness?" And I'm actually towards the end of this message, I will come back to this and uh, uh, present this thought a little bit, at least in a particular way. Uh, How should we really live in this world? What does that really look like? And I'm going to present a particular thought about it. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the wonderful name of Jesus and we ask for your blessing on this word. Give us ears to hear. God, give us tender hearts. And Lord, we plead with you for the grace to live it out. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Most of the time, I never tell people what I'm preaching. And uh, I'd probably say at least three-quarters of the time or more, I never tell Jesse what I'm preaching. And then I'll get people come up and ask me when I've, what I'm going to preach, and many times I won't even I won't tell them, because <laughs> I'm going, well, you know, I just want God to speak, and I don't want them to think anything is planned or prepared, and uh, um, you will hear, actually, uh, portions of what Pastor Jeff was hearing or was praying in this message. And um, so he, doesn't, he has no idea what I'm preaching. I'm just saying that so you, when you hear confirmation, when you hear particular things that you're understanding that the Spirit is speaking. There are seven things that Jesus said from the cross, seven sayings. I'm not going to go through all, all of them and I'm going to actually just deal with one, though I'll mention two of them. The very first one that he said from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And that's in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And uh, I'm not going to take the time to expound on that, at least not at this moment. But uh, that was the first thing he said. And I really believe that the first thing he said set other things in motion that is probably what brought about the second thing He said from the cross. And you know, when you go to theologians, and because the seven sayings are in the different Gospels, not one Gospel has them all, because they're all in different Gospels, it can be a challenge sometimes getting them what order was it, Which was what was the last one, and so on. So there can be a little bit of debate among theologians of, over which one is which. But I believe the second one is what Jesus said to a thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. And that's what I want to look at tonight, with me in paradise. And so we're going to go through a little journey here. We're going to look at this and I'm going to deal with some very challenging thought here. And uh, I want you to try and process it. And then like I said, I'm going to try and bring a conclusion for the church, for those who are true believers in one direction and for those who are not in another direction. Jesus endured all kinds of insults, all kinds of insults. I mean, they were hurled against him. He was attacked so, aggressive, so aggressively verbally that uh, you and I would be cowering under the barrage of, of insults and attacks that he had. People began mocking Jesus after he was arrested. And I'm not going to say they didn't mock him before and his preaching and so on. There will always be the mockers there, especially the scribes and Pharisees and the religious uh, Jews that were there. They would mock him in various ways. But here it was kind of like once he was arrested, the license to begin to mock him took place. And so people began to mock him. And so he's arrested and he's mocked by the temple guards that arrested him. He's mocked by the Sanhedrin council, supposedly the religious rulers of the nation that should have been spiritual men that were not. They were men filled with all these carnal desires and appetites and Jesus went and rebuked them says, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers when he was finally after the sham trial before the Sanhedrin turned over to the Romans and the Romans mocked him. The Romans went and took Jesus and and put a crown of thorns on Him. They put a robe on Him. They mocked the aspect of Him being king and bowed down in jest and smiting Him on the face after He was blindfolded and says, Prophesy, who hit you? They mocked Him in beating Him. They mocked Him in scourging Him. They mocked Him when He stood before the final crowd. The people mocked Him as He carried His cross. Mocked Him. They say in a prophecy in the Old Testament that His face was so disfigured because they pulled the beard from His face. We can't even imagine how horrendously He was deformed and twisted and altered from the beatings and the ripping of His hair and His beard and the spittle upon Him and the abuse that He went and faced. So they mocked him as he's carrying his cross. No sympathy. Yes, maybe through a few people that were were disciples but afraid to to come out and admit, admit it now, but the majority of people were just heartless. The reality of what was inside of them was being made manifest. Hell was asserting itself in the assault against Jesus, against God incarnate, And mankind was playing that same tune, doing the same thing that hell was singing, and the insults and the rage was coming against God incarnate. And then they mocked Him on the cross. Mocked Him. The the, the Pharisees, I won't say the Sanhedrin, I can't say they were necessarily out there, but the Pharisees were out there. The scribes were out there, the lawyers, maybe some of them that He went and confronted, that He went and says, Woe unto you! They're out there mocking him. Now I'm not going to go through all the things that they said. A little bit of what they said is in Scripture of how they mocked him. Before he even took his cross out. They mocked him before Pilate. What did they want? They wanted a murderer in the place of, of the author of life. Mocked him there. Mocked him on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 35, it says, The religious leaders sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. I mean, this is said with the utmost contempt. I mean, you've got to understand the, the, the literal hatred that is coming out of these words. The men that were saying this, this utter hatred for God incarnate. There was something so spiritual behind this because it wasn't just the mere aspect of jealousy of men. There was something spiritual behind it all that went and did this. The soldiers mocked him. If you're a king, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They mocked him. They didn't want to show even any kindness to Jesus. They mocked him. The criminals, on both sides of them, two thieves, on both sides of them, mocked them. Just mocked them. Hurling insults at them. And so they went and says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the idea of what it says in Scripture, that they hurled themselves... Heard these words or railed upon Jesus, implied that they kept doing it. It wasn't just a word they said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. It is that they kept doing it. They kept doing it. I mean, they were just on him, just tearing at him verbally, even though they're on crosses right next to him. The people mocked him. But you know what? The mocking hasn't stopped. People mock him all over the world. People mock him in false religions, mock Jesus. Use his name as a cuss word, but they say supposedly I don't even believe he exists. But they still mock him. Backsliders mock him. Because in the sin that they're in, they're mocking him. They once knew him, they once walked with him. And now through their whole life, their life is a mockery to God. People who claim to be Christian are in compromise. Their life is a mockery to what God is and who He's called them to be, but they live in their compromise and it's a mockery to Him. All the people in the story of Christ's crucifixion, all those who mocked Him, they rejected His intercession from the cross. They rejected His offer of forgiveness that came from the cross and that would come even after the cross and His resurrection. They rejected it. They mocked him. That's so all they could do was mock him. But you know, as the story goes on, you have this strange thing happen that Jesus finds a very unlikely ally. Finds somebody that is going to now change sides. And who is it that changes sides? It's one of the thieves on the cross. I mean, so here they are, this, this barrage of insults upon Jesus. I mean, just attacking them. The people, the the thieves, what changed this one man? What altered it? What was right there that was going on at the cross that changed his whole tune? What I believe it was, I believe it was when he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, can you imagine what those words had to do to those who could hear? All the mockers out there, all the people just just slamming Jesus in any way that they could and laughing at Him and pointing their finger. And Then all of a sudden, in the midst of it all, He says, Father, forgive them. The Romans had just went and scourged and beaten Him and abused Him and mocked Him and then went and are gambling over His clothes in front of Him and before all the people. They beat the nails in His hands. Thinking it was no big deal. Well, this is my job to crucify people and nail, put nails in people's hands and feet. And then he said, forgive them. And I guarantee you it shook everybody who heard those words. And personally, I think that's when the change came with that thief on the cross. I think that's when the change came. And so... In Luke chapter 23, in verses 40 and 41, the other criminal rebuked the one who refused to repent. He rebuked him and says, Don't you fear God? He said, Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. What an astounding statement! I mean, that is a statement that that thief knew something about Jesus. Now, understand. There was more knowledge that this man had about Jesus than what we commonly think of. We just think here he is on on, you know, crucified next to Jesus. But some of the things that he says speaks of a man who had greater knowledge about who Jesus was, because those aren't just some flippant words. There is some knowledge about Christ in these words here. So the first thing the man did is he acknowledged the justice of his judgment. Now, how often is it that people are facing their judgment and they're still, they may be afraid of it, they may be afraid of the execution, they may be afraid of whatever's gonna happen to them, but how often are they really in the place that they acknowledge, I am getting what I deserved? And that's what that man did. He says, I deserve judgment, I deserve damnation, I deserve separation. I have broken the law, and I would venture to say that this man knew the law. He may have been raised in a good Jewish home. He might have known the Ten Commandments and everything about it and how the exodus out of Israel, and he knew all this stuff, so he knew the reality of what it was to offend God, what it was to rebel and to break His laws. He acknowledged his guilt before God and man. Acknowledged it came the place of realizing, this is who I am. This is what I have done in my life. Then he acknowledged the innocence of Jesus. The holiness of Jesus. Now, that's a pretty astounding statement because really, if we look at it from a biblical standpoint, anybody that would be crucified ultimately deserves it. Because we're all wicked sinners, right? We, we've all done the crimes that, that, that demand justice. There's only one man who didn't deserve it. And he went and says, this man doesn't deserve it. He's a righteous man. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then he acknowledged that only Jesus can save. You know, he didn't call out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Didn't realize that that God was on the cross right now. (laughs) But he didn't, you know, it wasn't like he was appealing there. He wasn't crying out some of the pagan gods, the Roman gods. He wasn't asking for that. He wasn't asking for some other way of, of, of overcoming or being forgiven. He acknowledged that he was guilty. He acknowledged who Jesus was. And then, he acknowledged that Jesus was able to save him. I think that's pretty astounding. There you are, from the, you're on the cross, you're dying. Nobody gets off a cross alive. If you get nailed to a cross, you are going to be dead. That was the way it worked. It was an instrument of death. It was meant to be an agonizing, painful, misery Just this horrendous death. How can I even put it worse? We can't even understand how painful that would be. And yet from the cross, he acknowledged that only Jesus could save him. The only hope. My only hope. But it's not just that he acknowledged that Jesus could save him. This is big. This is huge here. He believed that Jesus could save him. There's a lot of people that can acknowledge that Jesus is God. They can acknowledge they're a sinner. They can acknowledge that Jesus forgives sins, but they can't come to the place to operate in faith, to lay hold of the promise. So the knowledge they have really only makes them more guilty because they're not willing to apply faith to obtain the promise of God. And so this man went and applied faith. He believed. He believed. You know what he didn't do on the cross? He didn't keep saying, forgive me, Jesus, forgive me, Jesus, forgive me, Jesus, forgive me, Jesus. Right? One time he went and says, have mercy on me, forgive me, remember me. That's all it took. When faith is an operation. You understand? That's, what, how, that's how it works. Because God forgives. He forgives. Now, what is here is so interesting because it is a progression of faith and how salvation comes to a person that's absolutely necessary for anyone so for anyone to be saved they have to basically go through the same identical thing they've got to acknowledge that they're a sinner that the judgment of God is just against them they got to acknowledge the holiness and the innocence and the purity and the divinity of Christ they got to acknowledge that he is the only savior and then they have to come to place to put their faith in him so it goes on, and this one man is a picture of the whole, of all of salvation right there. In this one little paragraph, in this one little situation, we see the fullness of it made manifest in such a, a practical and real way. So you have this criminal's desperate cry for mercy. After he rebukes the, the, the other thief, he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom is a little bit more of the revelation of what this man knew. So he had to have heard Jesus preach. He had to, because Jesus was always preaching the kingdom of God. Why would he go and mention the kingdom of God? Why would he go and say that you're a king, you're going to go to this place, and I want to be there with you? How would he know that? Just being a criminal, unless somehow in his journeys, he had listened to Jesus, heard him preach, maybe saw the miracles, maybe saw new, new people that got healed, or whatever. But somehow there was this knowledge that doesn't make sense apart from him actually having the experience of it. Because then he was acknowledging that Jesus was the son of David, that you were the one who had the right to the kingdom. You understand? That whole idea of the kingdom is Messiah's kingdom. In a Jewish way of thinking, it's Messiah's kingdom. And the only one that can be Messiah is the son of David, is a descendant of David that is going to rule and reign. And his reign is going to be forever. There's some tremendous knowledge that this man has about, about who Jesus is. And it brought him to the place, even though he lived the insanity and evil of his sin, it brought him to the place that he began to really cry out. And how sad that it took him on his deathbed, in essence because that's what it was, that it took him all the way there until he came to the place to really acknowledge who Jesus was and willing to follow him. And so he must have heard Jesus preach. He must have come to the place to understand that he was a son of David. You know, the son of David means that he had to know the lineage of Jesus. To refer to him in his kingdom, he had to understand that Jesus had the right to that. And if he was not of the, of the lineage of King David, He could have never even been Messiah. That would have all been done away with. I mean, there are some things that are just astounding here. But then he had to believe that this man that was being crucified had the desire and the ability to save him. That's astounding. Just been mocking him. You understand? He's just been brutally mocking him. And then he hears those words, Father, forgive him. And something just snapped in a right way in his mind. Just all of a sudden, the the, the light came on. What am I doing? I'm on my deathbed! And he cried out. You see, we will not cry for mercy until we really see our desperate need. Now, nobody's going to become a true follower of Jesus until they see their need. Nobody's going to be a true follower of Jesus until they understand that they're a sinner in need of salvation. And that is usually a very painful process to go through, to come to the place to really see it. But because somebody sees that they're a sinner, doesn't mean they're yet ready to turn from their sin. I mean, their sin can be abusing us and destroying our life and robbing us of everything, and yet we'll still cling to that sin. I mean, you go to Phoenix, Arizona... And there are homeless people everywhere. The only place I think there's probably more is going to be in California. But, I mean, they're everywhere. they all the street corners begging. I mean, it's like they're just everywhere. And you go to try and witness to them, and they can be some really hard people to witness to because they're in that condition because they chose to be in that condition, and they don't want to be out of that condition. Even when you go to them and say, I have a place for you to stay, I can help you get out of this if you want to get out, and they won't. They can be in misery and not want out of their misery. They could have destroyed every person in their life, ruined everything, burned every bridge, and yet still stay in their misery because they love their sin, even though it's destroying them, ruining them. How many people that have walked with Jesus at one time and loved their sin, went back to it, and was utterly and absolutely ruined because of it? Because they loved their sin and would not would not walk with Jesus, would not walk with Him. Will not cry for mercy to someone who is weaker than us. You know, so you got this guy out there, this 300 pound guy that sees you, grabs you, throws you to the ground and throws himself on, on top of you, wrestles you to the ground and guess what? Because you're not strong enough, and you're not big enough, and you can't even get them off of you, you cry for mercy, right? But you get this little four-year-old boy that comes up, and he wants to pick a fight with you, and you're that 300-pound man. All you got to do is you hold your hand out on his head, and he's swinging at your knees and can't even reach him, right? You don't, you don't give in. You don't cry for mercy from a little four-year-old, but this guy that is crushing you to death, you cry mercy from, We'll not cry for mercy to God till we understand that we cannot rescue ourselves, we can't save ourselves, that we are in this desperate need of God. And it's only at that point that we will cry out to Him. We will only cry out for mercy to Jesus when we believe that He is really wanting and willing to save us. You know, as long as you don't understand that, as long as you keep thinking you're too bad, you're too evil, you're too this, you're too that, you will not operate in faith to believe the promises of God, and so you will not lay hold of the promises because you'll not really understand them. You can use all the right language. You can always, you can say, oh yeah, have mercy on me, but yet you really don't believe He wants to have mercy on you. You believe that you are still too bad or too something or too whatever, and how is God ever going to show mercy to you? And so you are in denial of who Jesus is. You are not being like the thief on the cross that was crying for mercy. You're not like him acknowledging the innocence and the heart of God that is willing to forgive. You end up saying, well, I don't know, I'm too bad, I'm too this or too too that, rather than believing that God is willing and able to save. And so what happened? Tells us in verse 43 that Jesus answered him and says, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gave this criminal an everlasting promise. You understand that was an everlasting promise. That criminal is in heaven right now. Because Jesus gave that promise. Why did He give that promise? Because that man must have according to the infinite knowledge of God, Jesus knew the heart of that man that his repentance was sincere. It wasn't just some lip service. It wasn't some some deathbed confession that was scared of hell, but not really wanting to surrender. Jesus knew the man was in true repentance there. And what did it take to bring him to that place? It's a sad story. All the pain and misery the man went through. But yet, I'll guarantee you, he's really glad right now. Not for the he practice, but for the deliverance that was obtained on the cross. You see, only Jesus is able to fulfill this promise. You understand that nobody else can do it. If I went to you and, and says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise, you can laugh me to pieces and you can justly mock me because I have said uh, something just utterly stupid for a man. But for God incarnate to say that, it's a phenomenal promise, a phenomenal promise that he would Come to us and He would give us this promise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Without Jesus, we will go to hell. Without His mercy in our life, we will go to hell. We can't make heaven our home on our goodness, on our morals, upon our church history, or our position, or anything else. Upon knowing Scripture. We go to heaven because we come to the place and acknowledge who Jesus is, our guilt, and cry out for mercy, and we find this God of mercy that responds with mercy to us. But you see, it's not just the end there. I don't know. And we have no way of knowing an impossible question that really even ask and, and, and give an answer to, but what would this man have done if he could have gotten off the cross that moment? Would he continue for the rest of his days to walk with Jesus? Speculation we can't even imagine, but yet... I believe that God would give grace to any individual that's in the spot that wants to walk with Jesus. Nobody has an excuse. Nobody has an excuse not to be faithful to Jesus. Nobody has an excuse not to have the fire of God burning in them. Nobody has an excuse for not living a holy life. Nobody. Because God offers us everything we need for life and godliness, gives us absolutely everything And so without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That is an absolute statement. And what I mean by an absolute statement, it means that there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. It is absolute. If you are not holy, you do not make heaven your home. But how do you become holy? When you are unholy and you deserve to be hung on the cross, when you are unholy, how do you become holy? And it must be an act outside of ourselves, done by the only one who is holy that can make us holy. So repentance is the initial criterion of receiving the gift of salvation, but obedience is its continuance. It's not enough to go to Jesus and say forgive me. It's not enough. That begins salvation, or can begin salvation, but the evidence of salvation is seen in a life that begins to follow after him. In a life that starts pursuing holiness. In a life that doesn't want to practice a sin it once did. And is abhorred, is, is, is just overwhelmed with the ugliness of it and wants never to go back to it. You see, God gives us the way of escape. He gives us the way of escape. See, Jesus is longing to say these words to us. You know, think of this for a moment. Jesus wants to make these words for you, personal. Now, you're not on your cross that's going to die within hours. So He said to that man, Today you'll be with me in paradise. But I think if He was speaking this to us, and this is the heart of God, and I believe He does speak it to us, if we might have ears to hear, He would say, I tell you the truth. You will be with me in paradise if you are faithful to the end. You will be with me in paradise if you endure to the very end. If you'll be faithful all the days of your life, if you love me, serve me, be holy, you will be with me then forever. Just as real as the promise was to that thief is the promise to us. It's just now we have to live it out. That man did not have to live it out. It was right there. It was done. When he breathed his last, the promise was fulfilled. He was with Jesus in paradise. Now, here's the reality. We're forced to make a decision. We are forced to make a decision. We can't be neutral in the matter. So, the reality is, is, you are a criminal. Now, we don't want to necessarily hear that. We don't want the preacher to come up and say, you're a criminal. Well, but we are. We're a criminal before God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. I and mean, it's what we do. It's what we are. Because we go and pit ourselves one one against another and say, well, I'm a pretty good person because look at how bad those people are. So we can think ourselves good, but it has nothing to do with comparing ourselves one to another. It's the reality that we are willful sinners, that we willfully break God's commands, that that we willfully violate our own conscience. We know that. I mean, you can take people that have never heard the gospel and God has spoken into their conscience, given them a conscience. It's not this thing that's just just kind of there as being part of a human being and, and has no, no say. It is this, this area of life where God is speaking into, even to the heathen. And they violate their conscience. They know murder is wrong. They know adultery and fornication is wrong. They know particular ways of acting is wrong. They know it deep down inside. And yet they continue in their violation Willfully violating their conscience until eventually their conscience in areas of life is seared, with a hot, hot, seared as with a hot iron. I remember reading before about, uh, about cannibals and when they finally came to Christ they asked him, says, uh, did you, didn't you know that cannibalism was wrong? He says, yes we did. We knew it was wrong but that's what we did. They knew it. They knew it wasn't a cultural thing. Yeah, they they had established something in their society of of eating people, killing them and eating them, but they knew it was wrong. They violated their own conscience. They were guilty before God. So, we are criminals, not through misdemeanors, okay? Understand. People don't go to hell because they uh, jaywalk or they park in a handicapped parking place when you don't have the right to do it. Right? We... People go to hell because they're felons against God. They're felons. Well, let me give a couple examples here. Jesus went and the Sermon on the Mount says, if you don't forgive somebody, you have done what? Murder. Committed murder. Okay. Um, I would think that a good portion of us have at some point in time in our life had bitterness against an individual in our own heart, murdered them. Okay, so now we're all murderers. You think you're innocent? And how about, this is a huge one, how about lust? What did Jesus say that if you lust after a woman or lust after a man, what is that? Adultery. Okay, we're all dead. You understand? We're all guilty. We're not innocent. It's not like we can go and say, I have a right to eternal life because I'm a good person. We are all guilty before God until we are really willing to understand the extent of that guilt and give answer to it to God We're never going to overcome the sin that we should be overcoming. Here's a couple of other ones I think was interesting. Samuel was the last judge of Israel. He was a prophet. It was after the judge that kings came to be. And so the first king was King Saul. King Saul was a failure, an utter failure as a king. And the big reason why he was a failure is because he refused to obey God. Constant rebellion. He was just a rebel. That's all it was. Just just a total rebel. And because he rebels, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but because he rebels against God, God is going to take the kingdom from him. And the, and the prophet comes up to him, and he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and arrogance or stubbornness, depending on your translation, is like the evil of idolatry. Now let me just share that for a moment, okay? How many of us have been rebels? okay. He says, if you've been a rebel, you have practiced the sin of witchcraft. You have been, in essence, through your rebellion, a co-partner with Satan and the kingdom of Satan. You have lived in that. You You have reigned in that. That's what you were. That's what you lived out. You have been in witchcraft in your rebellion, in essence. He says it's equal to it. It's the same thing. But then he says that your arrogance or stubbornness is like the evil of idolatry. Why is it like the evil of idolatry? Because it is idolatry. itself. idolatry So just these few things is we're murderers, we're adulterers, we're, we're, we've been in witchcraft from our rebellion, and we have been idolaters. And so what right do we have to heaven? So we should put up another cross next to the, other, to the three that are already there. Understand that we need to be hanging on that. We are guilty, though, of the greatest of all crimes. The greatest of all crimes. You know what the greatest of all crimes is? Well, it comes out of that one of idolatry. It is the sin of anarchy. That's the sin that really damns people to hell. Not all the other names. We can put all the names of sin and make a big list of them. and Those aren't the sins that really damn people to hell. There's the byproduct that comes out of the real sin. And you know, that sin of anarchy, what anarchy is, is when people are anarchists, they end up saying, I will not let this government rule over me, and I'm going to fight against that government because I resist it and refuse to have it govern my life. And that's what people do to God. You will not govern me. I will live my life my way, do whatever I want, and you are not going to change that. Anarchists. Anarchists against the kingdom of God, rebels against the kingdom of God, and as a result, they have the judgment that anarchists deserve. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are guilty because we violated our conscience, violated God's Word. So, here's what it comes down to be. We are either a guilty criminal waiting for our sentence from the just judge, or we are a pardon criminal. There is no other option. We're going to be one criminal or the other. There's nothing in between but God. Do you understand? It's one or the other. Either you are going to be a criminal that understands your criminal life, the sins that you have practiced, and you throw yourself at Jesus and you cry for mercy, and you obtain a pardon from Him, Or you become the criminal that rebels against him and says no. And when that other criminal breathed his last, that moment he was in hell. So that's the seriousness of it. Now, if we're going to be a, a criminal that's pardoned, that's a wonderful thing. But we better understand something, that if we're going to be a criminal that's pardoned, then we're going to get papers from the king that gives us the pardon. In essence, we are going to have evidence of the pardon. So what's the evidence of the pardon? The evidence of the pardon is a transformed life. Does your life speak of the pardon that you have received? Is it real? Can you say, I have been pardoned by God? I have the evidence of that pardon in my life. But what I think is astounding with this, if we take this one step further, it's not just a pardon. So here we are, criminals deserving death. And because we cry out for mercy, He not only puts in our hands a pardon, so we have the papers of a pardon that says you have been pardoned, but then He also puts in our hands the paper of adoption. He adopts us. So now I should have on my life and character the marks of a pardon and the marks of a child of the King. right? My life should be speaking volumes of the reality of what God has done in me. It should be revealing it. People should be able to read me like a book and see, yes, I see the pardon in your life. I see the evidence of it. I see the evidence that you are like the one who adopted you are becoming more and more like Jesus your life is becoming an expression of who he is because you're looking at him as adoring children and you look at him and you want to emulate him you want to be just like him in everything and so we're familiar with Isaiah 53 wonderful portion of scripture i love preaching from it verses 3 through 5 are just a, a phenomenal Expression of what Jesus did on the cross. The whole chapter is about Jesus and what he would do on the cross 800 years before it ever happened. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a phenomenal amount of truth that's there. I mean, you could take months just preaching on those three verses and all the truths that are there, one after another after another. But yet, do, do you see something in there? Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's what they did to God. That's what they did to Christ. The mocking. All the mocking that went on. The whole aspect of the trial and his crucifixion. The mocking. They did not esteem him. They didn't look at who he was. They didn't acknowledge who he was. And even his disciples fled from him in terror. None of them stood by His side. None of them was was willing to be with Him. And that was rightly so. Not that they were cowards, but only Christ can die for our sins. No man can. Redemption comes through Christ alone. No other way. And here's this wonderful thing that Jesus did so that I could be pardoned. Because we have this terrible problem. You see, we are guilty before God. We are all guilty before God. And as being guilty before God, we deserve divine wrath. So how can God forgive those who deserve His justice. How? And none of us have an answer of ourselves unless we look in the Word of God. And even when we look in the Word of God, when we look at this, when we look at what Jesus did on the cross, we cannot really comprehend the whole thing because it doesn't make sense in the natural. Jesus went and took on Him my crimes. He took on His shoulders my crimes. Deeds of evil and acts and everything. He took all of it on his heart, on his life. Everything was put upon his shoulders. He took the punishment, the wrath that I deserved. He took it all fully, completely for me. For what purpose? So he could give me a pardon. So he could give that thief on the cross a promise as, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And that promise would be fulfilled. Because he took everything on him that we deserve. Now, if I do not as a criminal, go to Him and cry out for that mercy and throw myself at His feet and want to walk with Him, then I've got to bear my own sin. And when I stand before God, I will stand before God in my sin, having to deal with the reality of my sin, and there's no way I can cleanse myself or forgive myself from it. But when I look to Jesus, then I see one who took upon Himself because of His love so great, so beyond anything we can even fathom, that He took upon Himself my sin so He could say to me, you will be with me in paradise. The judgment I deserve He took so that I could be forgiven. So of all the criminals in this story, true story, okay, this is no, no make-believe in this, true story, of all the criminals which one are you? Are you the unrepentant criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus? Is that you? Does that speak of your life? The unrepentant criminal mocking God, refusing to give give up your life, resistant to him, in anarchy to your dying breath? Or are you the unrepentant religious criminals? that crucified Christ and called from the, from, from the crowd these mocking words against Him. So what? You're religious, but you're still a criminal that has not found forgiveness to your sins because you've not really gone to Jesus and asked mercy. You see, you can go to Jesus and say, Have mercy on me and never really ask Jesus for mercy. I could go to you and and tell you to take this water bottle from me, but you go to grab it and if I won't let it go, you can pull and tug as long as I'm holding on to it. You're not going to have that water bottle. You can go to Jesus all day long and say, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And if you're still clinging to your sin, you're never going to be really crying out for mercy because you cry out for mercy when you are finally saying, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm weary, I'm tired, I give it all up. When he reaches out and says, you want mercy? Okay, I'll take that from you and He can take it out of your hands. He'll not rip it out of your life. He's waiting for us. How about the unrepentant criminals that were mocking Jesus from the crowd? Can you imagine how absolutely crazy it would be on each of these people's judgment day? The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin council that condemned Jesus to death, and they breathed their last and they stand before Jesus? You know, can you imagine that day of what it was? Can you imagine all the people today that mock God, that defy Him, that deny His existence, and all of a sudden they stand before Him at one moment. They have to acknowledge the reality of who He is. And that's why the Word of God says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who are God-haters and defied Him and lived in anarchy will have to acknowledge who He is, but not in repentance. Repentance but under the authority and power of God to acknowledge the reality as they receive their final judgment. What a sad end that never has to be in the lives of people. Or maybe you're like the unrepentant Roman soldiers that mocked and beat Jesus and just ridiculed Him in the cruelest way possible. Or, here's a really disturbing one. Are you like the criminal disciples that forsook Jesus? They were all cowards. They were all cowards. The only ones who weren't was, were the women. <laughs> right? Okay, ladies, you, you've got it well over us. You're the ones who stood strong in that. They were the ones that were the ladies out there in the crowd that were weeping over Jesus. John, the Apostle John, showed up finally, but he ran away first with all of them. Or are you the repentant criminal that's been pardoned and have received an adoption received an adoption, a gift beyond imagination. You and I that are true followers of Jesus, we cannot imagine what that adoption means. We have no way of wrapping our mind around that, what it is. We still live in this fallen world, we still have to deal with the hardness of life and the, and the, and the, the pain and the suffering that goes on and so we don't see the full extent of what it is to be true child of the King that had been adopted. But in heaven we will begin to see the fullness of what that all means the blessings, the treasure that is, that is in all that thing, no matter how much I suffered, if from this moment on I suffered every day of my life, and if I was faithful to Jesus to the very end, that suffering would be as nothing the moment I saw His face, the moment the reality of my adoption, the moment my pardon was fully manifested, it would be all worth it. All utterly, absolutely, completely worth it. And it would be as if none of the pain, the things I went through was as if nothing. We get so consumed with it here, unfortunately, because we do not see very well into eternity. So what's the only right response? There's only one right response that went on, and that was a criminal that cried out for mercy. Only one right response. There's only one right response to any human being to what Jesus did. Only one right response total, complete abandonment of our life. I love how Oswald Chambers says it in his devotional, My Utmost for the Highest. He calls it reckless abandonment. Only right response. And in light of what is going on in our world, in light of Jesus coming back, there's only one right response. How are we supposed to live in this present evil age? What are we supposed to do? There's only one right response, which is a total, complete and reckless abandonment. Not some half-hearted Christianity. Not some lukewarm religion. Not some, some devotion that has no substance to it. But this passion for this God that was so good. So good He broke in your world when you didn't want Him. So good that He brought the truth of who He is when you weren't even looking for Him. So good that He broke through all the pain and the misery and the sin to bring you the truth of who He is even when you were resistant to that truth. So good that when you finally, finally said, Have mercy on me. He says, Keep, He didn't go to you and say, Keep saying that for the next 10 years. Maybe I'll think about it. What did he do? You cried out for mercy. And he was there with mercy. Only right, one right response. Dio Moody was a very famous evangelist of the late 1800s. He died in, around Christmas of 1899. But before he died, and not that anybody knew he was going to at that time, the governor of Illinois went and asked Dio Moody to do a favor for him. And Dio Moody became so famous, he had the largest church in Chicago, and he was never an ordained or licensed minister. He was a layman. Yet he had the, he had the largest church. He preached all over the country. He preached over in, in the United Kingdom. He won probably near a million souls to Christ. He saw revival. God used the man. A simple man. A man that was actually a butcher of the English language. And it's astounding that they received him over in Europe. Over in England, because England like proper English. They don't want the American kind of, you know, slangy version. And he was just a guy off the streets that preached the gospel and won kids to to Jesus galore. So the governor says, I have something I do every year. I give a pardon to one woman in a woman's prison for Thanksgiving." And so I can't be there and I'm asking if you would be the one to go there and give the pardon in my place. And so Dia Moody says, yeah, sure, I'll go. So he prepared a message that he was going to preach and everything and have it all revolve around the aspect of a pardon. He gets there and, I mean, this auditorium in the prison is just packed with all these women. And he starts to preach and in the midst of his preaching he ends up saying, I have here in my pocket, and he pulls out an envelope, I have here in my pocket, here is a pardon for one woman. And all of a sudden he lost control of of the people, lost control of the ladies. Because you know what was on the heart, the mind of every single woman right there? Is my name on that. Am I going to be today a free woman? And so when he realized that he couldn't get control of the service again, that he couldn't continue preaching because because they were so disturbed over this. Moody went and opened the letter, took out the letter and read the name of the one woman that would receive a pardon. And she was way in the back. She was way in the back. When she heard her name, she stood up with with just a, a scream and then fainted. And so one of the matrons of the prison was there and woke her up, got her up, and, and moved her out. And she starts coming. She's walking down the and She starts getting so hysterical. She is laughing and weeping at the same time. She is just totally overwhelmed. And as she's coming down, she falls and she starts crawling on her knees and gets up and stumbles and falls again. She is an absolute an, an emotional wreck in a good way. She realizes a pardon has come to me. I have a pardon finally, she makes her way all the way up to the platform. And Moody is there holding this pardon out to her. And all of a sudden, she gets up there and she grabs that pardon and pulls it to her bosom. Moody had the rest of his message. He said, that is the only right response to anybody that receives a pardon from God. It's the only right response to understand the treasure of what it is, the gift of that pardon, the gift that He would forgive. When you understand the reality of your crimes against heaven, then you can begin to understand the wonder of His love. That you would see the reality of this God that made the way that you could be forgiven, that He could give you a pardon, and then at the same time adopt you as a son or daughter. Only one right response Only one right response. Nothing else will do. Nothing else is acceptable to God. He'll not receive anything else because it is not fitting for who He is and what He has done for us. The saying that came out of the Moravian revival, and I hear it many times around here, I say it uh, many times in preaching over all the years that I've known it, that He deserves the reward of His suffering. The reward of His suffering is that kind of faith. Faith. That kind of joy, that kind of commitment, that kind of abandonment, because He has pardoned us, because He's adopted us. That that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for God should be burning in us. Not for a little bit, not for a newborn babe in Christ, but all the days of our life. And we should be getting more zealous for God as we get older, as we understand these truths in a greater way, as they become a greater reality to us. The zeal for God should be growing, not lessening. We should see the wonder of who he is and become so overwhelmed that he would care. Even 48 years later after becoming a Christian to be overwhelmed that he would come to me, a drug addict in a park, forgive me and then adopt me. Only one response is right. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, we are all criminals here. I pray for anybody here that doesn't comprehend it because they are blind and ignorant to the reality of their true moral and spiritual condition. Oh, God. But for anybody here that is not a true follower of Jesus, for anybody here that is a backslider... For anybody here that has had just a spurious conversion, they've never really given their life to Christ. They've never understood. They've never grabbed hold of the pardon and allowed the thankfulness that should be filling their heart to define them. God, I'm asking that you would do something radical this evening in the life of anybody that is not right with you. But God, I'm asking you to do something radical in the lives of everyone that does know you. <coughs> There's only one right response, God. You are deserving our passionate pursuit. You are deserving of it all, O God. And Jesus, sweet Jesus, I pray that You would work this into our heart, work this into our mind, work this into our very spirit, O God. That it wouldn't be something that we could say at this moment, yes, amen to what the preacher said and not let it change us, God. But that it would become something that begin to define our life more and more. That we'd see more and more and more the wonder of what God has done in pardoning and adopting us. And that we would begin to live lives that bring glory to Him, that's pleasing to Him, that is acceptable, O oh God. Would you do that, Jesus? In your precious name.